Hello friends, welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. Okay, let's talk refuge. Last week, we talked about the history of refuge uh, from sort of pre-Buddhist culture and then Buddhist culture and then kind of modern American Buddhism. And basically what we were talking about is how it evolved over time, how it evolved from a sort of mystical experience where you take refuge, safety and security with deities or other people that protect you from danger to being a spiritual ritual that Buddhist culture did to make a commitment to the Dharma, a commitment to Sangha and a commitment to the Buddha. And it became not only a ritual, but a meditative practice a meditative practice that's designed to support not only our meditation, but to support the community itself. So we kind of went over that history. Um, That's on the podcast. If you guys weren't here last week, you can check it out. Um, And so today I wanted to go deeper into the, the pretty straightforward traditional description of what each of the refuges mean and what the basic interpretation is so we can kind of bring it in uh, and bring it home from its history to its practicality. And the first thing I wanted to do is I wanted to read you a quote from the Satipatthana Sutta. And the reason I'm going to do this is there is a phrase in the Satipatthana Sutta that talks about practicing internally and externally. And this phrase is important because it occurs in our refuges. And so I wanted to show you where it comes from. And then we can talk about how we use it here. And it'll, it'll make sense in a second. But... There's this refrain in the Satipatthana Sutta that goes like this, and I just wanted to read it here. In this way, in regard to the body, the meditator contemplating the body internally or the meditator contemplating the body externally or the meditator contemplating the body both internally and externally. It's an interesting reframe and The Buddha repeats this with every one of the four foundations for feelings, for mental concomitants, for dhammas, the fourth foundation of mindfulness. The instructions are to contemplate each one of the four foundations, both internally, externally, or both. And it's just this little line, but this line goes through every single foundation of mindfulness. So there's a specific instruction about internal and external practice. Now, what's interesting about this is that the Buddha doesn't explain it beyond that. Within the sutta, he doesn't say anything else about it. And we have commentaries which talk about it and ask, what did he mean by this? And then there's other types of texts that sort of debate back and forth what he meant. Most of the descriptions and interpretations are pretty straightforward, and I find most of them to be helpful no matter what they are. So I'm just going to explain to you Uh, how this works. And then as we move through the refuges, I'll show you how the refuges are also designed to be experienced both externally and internally. And it will make sense when we go through it. But 
basically internally is pretty obvious, right? We're meditators. So we know that a lot of our practice is bringing awareness to the internal experience of existence, bringing awareness into direct contact with what is happening inside. And so that's pretty straightforward. And we also know that we can be aware at the sense doors of what's going on slightly outside, right, in our environment. So that could be considered external. And then there's one more layer of this where we can be aware of other people and how those people are experiencing pleasure and pain, happiness, freedom, and so on. So we have this internal and this external way of bringing awareness to ourselves and the world. Now, when we're looking at other people, what this means from one interpretation is that we watch other people and we watch as they move from happiness to sadness, from contraction to freedom. And we watch using our awareness to see the causes in their life of suffering and the causes in their life of happiness. And the reason we do this is so we can connect and compare it to our own experience. Now, most of you, I'm sure, have had this experience, which is you're a meditator and your practice starts to develop and you start to be aware of your own suffering. You can see kind of your pet peeves and you can feel the contraction of the heart when that happens and you can feel grasping and clinging. You're aware of the hindrances when they arise. And then you have someone close to you and you can see when their hindrances are arising too, but they can't see them. <laughs> And so, and you can't say anything because of course, what are you going to say? But in that moment, what you notice is you can see that your heart and mind is similar to other hearts and minds and that suffering and happiness have a universality to them. And that if we can bring awareness to how we're suffering and how we're becoming free and watching other people as they move from suffering to freedom and back and forth, there's a great opportunity for empathy and compassion. And there's also a great opportunity to just connect at the level of our humanity. So internal, external is right there in the classic teaching of Vipassana practice, that we're not just supposed to go inside and hide away. We're also supposed to look at our fellow humans and interact with them and be awake and aware to their process of happiness and suffering and use it for our liberation and their liberation. So that's what we have here, this internal and external process. When you think about becoming a part of a spiritual community, the internal and external realities are pretty straightforward on the surface. So for example, when folks took robes back in the day, by back in the day, I mean thousands of years ago, when folks took robes back in the day, one refuge they were taking was from the culture that they were involved in. They wanted to go into a spiritual culture, living a spiritual life. So what they were seeking in part was protection from a culture that was geared towards, we might say, greed, hatred, and delusion, right? Or craving and aversion. And they wanted to enter into a spiritual culture, into a relationship with other beings who wanted to practice spiritually. So there was a sense of protection, external protection from the culture at large, and instead getting safety, security, and comfort in a spiritual culture. So that's an example of external. And then once you're in that culture, you are internally transformed by practicing with your fellow monks and nuns at the time. And so there's this internal part 
That's the inside transformation and the external part, which is this external protection. What's interesting is that even though we don't leave the world per se, because we're all householders, even though we don't leave the world, our commitment to meditation practice is still a commitment to live a different kind of life. We orient towards compassion. We orient towards wishing well for all beings, right? We orient towards being awake and aware and leaning into suffering versus running away from it. And that in and of itself is very countercultural. Even though we haven't left the culture per se, we are setting our GPS, right? Our highest aspiration is to be free and to encourage others to be free and to help others and assist others as we assist ourselves. So even though we haven't left the culture, we still are taking an external refuge from the tendencies of the culture. We're aspiring to something different. We're asking the practice and our community to help us be liberated. And in general, culture at large is asking us to seek happiness in sensory stimulation, to seek happiness in greed, overconsumption, and so on. And we turn towards spiritual culture, away from this other world, this external, and we seek protection and support and care from our community. And in that community, we then get to internalize our practice to grow inside and have the awakening that we seek. So you see on the surface, there is an external and internal part of this. Our commitment to be meditators is a slight push away from culture at large, just even if it's in the sense of acknowledging that there might be a higher happiness or that compassion gets to be at the top of the menu or that we take time away from sensual pleasures to have the pleasure of gratitude and compassion and wakefulness. So even that is a type of refuge, this external and internal refuge. Another way of looking at this is that we have the Buddha, which was, is, of course, teachers, the Buddha and teachers. <laughs> the Buddha, teachers, the teachings, books, Dharma talks, podcasts, whatever. And then we have our community, our Sangha. So we have Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. And we need Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, these external things as role models and guideposts for our practice. But those are external things. And then we use these guides and we use the teachings to then have an inner transformation. We take the external refuge and we bring it inside and the refuge becomes internalized. It becomes inside the heart instead of outside. And there's this famous passage that the Buddha talks about where he talks about being a refuge unto yourself. And I wanted to read this because this is a pretty famous passage. This is from the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. And just to give you some context, the conversation that's going on here, Ananda is asking the Buddha, what are we supposed to do after you pass away in regards to refuge? Because when he the Buddha's alive, like the Sangha is a living, breathing thing, and what happens after the Buddha passes away? And Ananda is concerned about this. And so the Buddha replies, Therefore, Ananda, dwell with yourself as your own island, with yourself as your own refuge. Take no other refuge. Take the Dharma as your island. Take the Dharma as your refuge. Take no other refuge. 
take no other refuge. Oftentimes this quote is reduced down to the Buddha saying, you are an island, you are your own refuge, which is sort of what he's saying. But the main thing that he's saying here is that the refuge ultimately is inside. No matter the teacher, the teachings, or the community, those are all external things that we take refuge in. But ultimately, we have to bring them inside the heart into real internalized practice. And at that point, the ultimate refuge that the Buddha is talking about is refuge within. And if you think about it, if the highest happiness, according to the Dharma, is a happiness that is harmless, doesn't harm ourselves, doesn't harm others, if it's a kind of happiness that is stable, long-term happiness, right? And it's a type of happiness that is not conditioned, unconditional, not dependent on outside circumstances, it would make sense that the ultimate refuge is going to lie in one's own heart, right? Ultimately, the freedom has to be something that we experience within. Because if it's dependent on anything else, then it can't be completely free. So this ultimate refuge is an internal refuge, even though in our practice, we spend our time delighting in these external refuges. So I hope that makes sense. Now, I wanted to just break down the three refuges and the classic interpretations of what these mean. Most of the time, they're fairly easy to understand, but I like to give a little spin on each one of them, just from my own experience. Taking refuge in Buddha. So the main thing here that I think is important when we're talking about the Dharma is that we're not really taking refuge in the Buddha as a person. And let me, let, me, me say, let me explain what I mean by that. We're not really taking refuge in the Buddha as a person. And what I mean by that is the Buddha was not a god to be worshipped, right? And he, he says this, that he's, he's not to be worshipped, he's not a deity. And so taking refuge in the Buddha as a person would be kind of asking the Buddha for protection or safety in the sense that he'd be a deity, like you could make a wish and the Buddha would offer you some kind of sanctity or salvation or something. Now, it's important to remember that in the history of the Dharma, after the Buddha passed away, and over time, there are pretty specific Buddhist lineages in which the Buddha really is considered to be a god. You pray to Buddha, you ask the Buddha for things in the sense of like granting things. And in that case, in those traditions, you are taking refuge as a person. But in the traditional teachings, that was not the intention of taking refuge in Buddha, not as a person. The other thing I like to say about taking refuge in Buddha is that the, the comparison is like in the Christian tradition, one of the correlative refuges, if you will, is that you take refuge in Jesus's divinity. The fact that Jesus is considered to be the son of God and is divine. And there is a refuge that's taken in that fact that Jesus is the son of God. There's a refuge in that in Jesus's divinity. Now, contrasting it, at least in this way, in Buddhism, we're taking refuge in the Buddha's humanity. We're taking refuge in the fact that we're human, the Buddha's human, he was able to get enlightened, so to speak, awakened, and we can get awakened. So we're connecting on a not a personhood level, but at our innate humanity, right? Taking refuge in Buddha, in, in a sense, is saying, this person was awakened, I'm also human, because I'm not a deity, he wasn't a deity, and that should give a sense of comfort, a sense of inspiration, 
uh, sense of confidence because he can do it, we can do it. So there's a different element of taking refuge in the Buddha's humanity in Buddhism. And most of us come to these practices with a Judeo-Christian overlay and we see it in a little bit uh, differently. So we can take it two ways usually for the refuge in Buddha. One, we take refuge in the fact of his awakening. And what this means is we just have a sense that, wow, here's this person who laid this claim that he was awakened and we use that to be confident in our practice. We say to ourselves, oh my gosh, there is a way out. And we take refuge in that. We take comfort. There's a sense of confidence that we can get in thinking that us, like the Buddha, can become awakened. So we take refuge in the fact of his awakening. The second part of this is we internalize that and we take refuge in the qualities, in the heart-mind qualities that the Buddha practiced and represented in his own life. So the external part of taking refuge in Buddha is that we take comfort in the fact that this other human being has let us know, has sent us this message, so to speak, across time from teacher to student and teacher to student, that there is a possibility of human beings to awaken. And we then internalize that by practicing and cultivating all of these lovely heart-mind qualities that he said led to his enlightenment. Heart-mind qualities, as we know, are the seven factors of awakening, which include mindfulness and concentration, joy, tranquility, some of the more, uh, I would say subtle, uh, compassion is what I was thinking, even though it's not necessarily enlightenment factor. We've got our joy, we've got our investigation or curiosity. So we've got these heart-mind qualities that we internalize and we literally awaken in our heart and mind. And then that becomes a refuge as well within our own hearts. So taking refuge in Buddha really refers to getting in touch with our innate humanity and having confidence that we can get out of suffering. And when we have times when we're doubtful, we can remember this person said, hey, you can do this. I'm like you. There is a way out. I've done it. And here are the qualities that you can take on to get there. So that's Buddha. That's, that's refuge in Buddha at the basic level. Refuge in Dharma. So refuge in Dharma, again, some of this is pretty straightforward. But there's three parts of this, and I think it's fun to look at it this way. When you take refuge in Dharma, what you're basically saying is you're taking some kind of comfort, some kind of refuge in whether it be the Dharma talks, the path itself, like the blueprint that the Buddha has laid down, the actions of actually meditating, that feeling of comfort that you get when you're actually practicing. And it also refers to the moment of insight, the little insights that we have along the way bring us a sense of refuge. So we can take refuge in the practice, in listening to it, going on retreats, coming together in practice like we do here. This would be considered taking refuge in Dharma and refuge in Sangha, meeting week to week like this. So we have the words or the teachings, the actual practices, and then we have taking refuge in the insights. And what's interesting about this is it forms a little cycle. The more we're confident in the teachings, the more we're going to practice. And the more we practice, then the more we're going to have insights. And the more we have insights, the more we're convinced, oh, these teachings are worth taking refuge in. And then the cycle continues. Now, you can start anywhere. You might start by meditating and never having read any Dharma books. And you start meditating and you're like, wow, this is really, this is really cool. This is really helpful. 
Maybe I'll start reading. And then you read about it and you read about your experiences and that gives you more confidence. And then more awakening happens. And every time you get that taste of awakening, every time you have an insight or you feel that real sense of stress release in meditation, you have that hope, that confidence, and that sense of being cared for by the practice itself. And so there's this little cycle that occurs when it comes to taking refuge in the Dharma. Keep in mind that that same cycle also occurs with doubt. When we start doubting the practice, right, when we start doubting the practice or doubting the teachings, then the cycle works the exact same way. <laughs> doubt being a hindrance, so right? I doubt the teachings, not going to practice so much. I stop practicing or don't practice as much, not so much insight, and therefore the whole thing begins to unravel, which is why Robert calls uh, doubt the practice killer. Because the whole refuge starts to unwind. If we start doubting the practice, then we're certainly not going to be doing any study. And if we're not going to be any study, then the, the awakening that we had before starts to decrease and so on. So we've got these cycles in the Dharma of doubt and the practice. And the reason I mention this is because one of the antidotes to doubt is taking refuge. So that's why you have these two antithetical uh, cycles in the heart and mind that happen in taking refuge. Okay. Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. Okay. Let's talk Sangha. Let me just give you the, just the historical uh, division here, which I know you've heard me say before in other Dharma talks. Traditionally, the word Sangha referred to the monastic communities. So the word had a special meaning to the spiritual communities where people lived. So if someone said they were in a Sangha or were living in a Sangha, that's what they meant. That's what the word meant. There was also a subset, so to speak, uh, of Sangha members, what is referred to as ideal Sangha. These were folks within the community that had experienced stream entry or the first stage of enlightenment. The reason that this subsect of a spiritual community was given its own name and was so important is that within the tradition of the Dharma, every generation of practitioners needs to have members of the community that are experiencing awakening. Because if you don't have people in each generation experiencing awakening, after a while, awakening becomes a myth. No one can actually say that, they, that the technique actually works. No one can actually say, oh yes, I've been there, and this is how you, how you do it. So ideal Sangha were the Sangha members that had at least that first experience, that first taste of awakening. Because then the community could be passed down that you know that each generation has some person or group of people that has experienced it and without a doubt can tell you this is for real. This is definitely for real. What you see in, in lineages and in religions is the further you are away from someone having experienced the enlightenment, then it becomes a fantasy or a story. And then eventually people say, well, a couple hundred years ago, someone said they had some awakening, but no one's had one for the last 500 years. So we're not really sure. So you see what happens over time is if you don't have people experiencing the awakening, then doubt starts to creep in because it's hard to take refuge in a community if there's skepticism about where you're all going, right? If we don't really have the confidence, it's hard to take refuge. So ideal Sangha is a really important concept in the transmission of spiritual practice in Buddhism.
And then the last distinction is Parisa, which I've mentioned a few times before, which is the lay or householder sanga, which is what we are. We're a, we're a sangha. We're a householder. None of us are in robes. We have families and kids and cats and mortgages and stuff. And that's called Parisa, which is just householder sangha. Communities of people coming together. Could be Buddhist, non-Buddhist, depending. Um, but here we are in sangha. And it's also significantly meaningful and takes on the same psychological roles that the monastics were being supported by in their own communities. In modern Buddhism, all people who are practicing mindfulness in some way are considered to be part of this human sangha, right? This parisa. So we have these three types of sangha. The conventional one, which is just the monks and nuns. We have ideal sangha, which is the groups within the sangha who've experienced at least the first stage of stream entry. And then we have our householder sangha as well. I just wanted to touch on the practical application of Sangha real quick uh, as we move towards the end of our night. I just love spiritual community, <laughs> personally. I love knowing that other people around me are meditating and meditating together. And as you all know, meditating alone as a solo journey is really difficult, right? You can see clearly why Sangha was necessary for spiritual practice, especially this kind of spiritual practice. Meditating on your own, being the only one talking about this kind of stuff is isolating, alienating, and, and you just don't have a lot of support. And the main thing to remember is that Sangha was a culture. And so collectively, meditators had an aspiration. They had an aspiration to be loving and kind and generous, right? They had an aspiration to awaken. And you know, we take for granted in this in this community, or if you have other smaller communities that you're a part of with your spirituality, you know, it's very easy for us to say things like, you know, may all beings be happy. You know, may all beings, you know, be free from suffering. And no one in this room flinches when I say that. You all know what I mean, and we're all getting down on it, right? And But if I were to go to my workplace, and I have a great, I have multiple workplaces, you know, I have a social work workplace, as loving and kind and caring as that place is, if I were to start a team meeting by saying, let us take a minute to wish all beings to be free from suffering, it would still be kind of weird. Like no one would know mostly what I'm talking about. And even though it's a social work agency that aspires to free human beings from suffering, they're not in Sangha. So a lot of the way we talk wouldn't necessarily make sense. So it's in those moments that I realized that there's this camaraderie that we share in a spiritual culture where we can care for each other and be kind to each other and aspire collectively to be kind to others. And we can hear each other and be heard, right? We can, we can know each other and be known in our practice and in our aspiration. So we really do find support in spiritual Sangha. One other thing I wanted to mention about Sangha the shadow side. It's because it's so helpful in a Sangha to have other people doing the same practices, speaking the same language, taking the same classes. It's wonderful to go into a class, and for me especially, going into a class and being able to say the four foundations of mindfulness and everyone just nods. So this makes me feel totally at home, right? I'm at home. You know, I talk about the seven enlightenment factors and everyone's like, yeah, enlightenment factors. And so this makes me feel like I'm cared for and connected and not a weirdo. And so this, here's the shadow. 
The shadow side is when a spiritual community starts to say, everybody outside of here who doesn't speak this language is bad, and we are, and it starts closing in on itself, right? It takes that love and care and that adoration that we have for each other, and it starts to fall back into itself and it begins to push everybody else out. That's when you start getting, well, your family members aren't in the spiritual sangha, so maybe you should stop seeing them. That cultish aspect where it becomes isolated and no longer nourishing. You start to see this in spiritual communities also when there's an insecurity in the spiritual culture about their tradition being tainted by those outside, those who don't speak the language. It becomes an us and them phenomenon. So you often see this where your spiritual communities start off as these amazing, loving, you know, situations. And then you come in one day and people have guns. And it's suddenly a completely different scenario. Um, I've watched a few of those shows on Netflix in the last few years of the different spiritual communities that kind of went left. Um, and, it, and I really, I felt so bad because, you know, in these documentaries on these spiritual communities, you see that the intention was benevolent. Like they came in and they wanted to practice spirituality and be with their own kind, so to speak, to be around other loving, generous human beings who had, you know, these aspirations. And then somewhere along the lines, suddenly there's, you know, it becomes a cult rather than a spiritual community where there's this freedom and support. So we have to be careful around that. You know, the idea of coming together doesn't mean we push other people away, right? It doesn't mean we push our families away and our friends away just because they don't know how to list off the four hindrance, five hindrances or the enlightenment factors, right? So just wanted to throw that out there because we can see this a lot in spiritual communities. So Buddha Dharma Sangha. We take refuge in Buddha. We take this sense of being protected and confident by the fact of the Buddha's awakening. We connect human to human and we use that as a sense of aspiration, right? Internal, external. We take refuge in the Dharma, which are the teachings and the blueprint we look to the insights to inspire us and support us and encourage more practice and more study. And then we use that study and practice to then again increase our awakening. And we do all of this within hopefully the loving arms of Sangha, of other people who want to share these aspirations, who can talk with us about our struggles and our successes, and we can look for comfort when we fall flat on our face, which all of us, of course, are human and do all the time. And so we have our Buddha, our Dharma, and Sangha. And you can kind of see how this all fits together. Why, when someone entered into a spiritual community, they would chant the refuges, they would take refuge in Buddha, Dharma, Sangha as a commitment that, hey, I'm a part of this, I'm aspiring with you, and I want to be your spiritual friend. I want to care for you in this spiritual practice, in this spiritual life. So I think I'm going to stop there. There's another layer to this that I will go into next week, which is how we practice with the refuges, like where the rubber meets the road with practice. We'll take it one step further, uh, Buddha Dharma Sangha. Let's, um, let's call it for that. Um, thank you so much for coming. Next week, we'll take a deeper dive. We'll go down to some more practical aspects of uh, refuge. As I said, the whole month is going to be themed uh, refuge. So um, we got some other other stuff to talk about next week. We'll do a little bit of meditation around the refuges and how we can kind of like work with them. Um, it's very interesting stuff. Very interesting stuff. 
yeah, let's uh, let's fall back into meta for a couple minutes before we close. Let's take a couple long, slow, deep breaths in through the nose and out through the mouth. Bringing in breath energy to fill the body. Filling the body with nurturing awareness. Bringing our awareness back to sitting, back to breathing, back to our embodied nature. We come together each week to share and take refuge in Sangha. We come together to join in this highest aspiration of freedom from suffering. And we come together in practice with this lofty aspiration that all beings may be free, that all beings may be free from suffering in this lifetime. May all beings know true love and true joy. May all beings know true happiness. A happiness that is unconditional, blameless, harmless. A happiness that is non-judgmental. A happiness that leads to true freedom. May all beings be free from suffering in this lifetime. And again, let's extend our hearts collectively and hold the grief of the world. Power of Sangha coming together and being able to hold the suffering of others. Wishing all beings to be heard and cared for. This wish that no being should grieve alone. Holding the suffering of the world in our hearts. May all beings be free. May all beings be free. Thank you, my friends, for sharing your hearts and minds with me tonight. Lovely as always. Be safe. Be well. See you next week. Give me a shout out if you need any support. Thanks for coming.
Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.